Well, hey, if this is uh, your first Sunday here at Encounter, or maybe just your first Sunday to church in general, I think today's a perfect Sunday to start making church a regular rhythm, a regular spiritual rhythm in your life, because we're kicking off a new series today called Selfless. To be honest with you, Selfless is like the short form title. What I wanted to call the long form is Selfless Living in a Selfie World right? It's catchy. It's, but we didn't do that because it wouldn't fit on the programs. And also because literally everybody told me it was way too cheesy as a title to go with. Also, there was a book by that name that I walked by in a bookstore one time and didn't buy. So I didn't feel good about not, you know, using the title. And let's be honest, by walk by in a bookstore, I mean scrolled by it on Amazon. But whatever, I can't recommend it because I don't know what's in it. Anyway, that's the idea of this series is if you get like one statement out of this the whole time, Right? If, you, if you take nothing away, because let's be honest, we are in the middle of summer right now. I mean, it's the dead smack middle, July, that we're doing this series. And I'm super pumped about this series, and I think it's going to be an awesome one. But I also know that a lot of you are going to kind of go on trips, on vacations, and you're going to watch and, and, and listen online every weekend. I know that. But a couple of you might just miss a couple, and I don't want you to miss out on how life-changing and how important I think this series is going to be. So I'm just going to tell you, like, everything that this series is about, just the whole, it's four weeks long, the month of July, our focus around here for the month of July this whole time is this one singular line about live a life, live a God-first life in a me-first world. That's what everything is about. That's what July at Encounter is about. It's about living a God-first life in a me-first world. Now, let me, let me tell you what I mean by a me-first world. Came across a stat this week that said that, that over a million selfies are posted every single day. Right? That doesn't surprise many of you because you're like, I feel like I got a few thousand just myself. But <laughs> think about it for just a minute. Over a million selfies are posted across Instagram, Facebook, social in general. Over a million every single day. That, that's, like a, that's a lot of this right? Like coming at the world. Not this particular, because I can't get like one chin when I try to do it. But you get the, it's a lot of us coming out, coming out into the world. And something happens in that process. Something remarkably anti-gospel, anti-Jesus happens in that process, I think. Now, it doesn't happen all at once. It's not like you post a selfie or you see a selfie and all of a sudden everything is ruined. You're a crackpot. You're good for nothing, right? It's not like all of a sudden it all comes crumbling down all at once. I think it happens over time and over not just even years, but think about the accumulated effect of, of scrolling through somebody's cherry-picked curated high points of life, uh, pictures that are cropped, filtered, chopped. I mean, cherry-picked. Everything is, is perfectly in line. So, so that constantly, right, several times a day, over decades and decades of time, you, you're seeing the highlight reels of someone else's, no, of everyone else's life and the accumulator effect of knowing the behind the scenes of your own life. And as that effect starts to add up and starts to add up, like there's a, there's a gap that gets created. There, there's a gap that gets created in between who you know that you are and the person that you desire to be. There's a gap that gets created there between who you are and, and the person that people expect you to be. There's a gap between who you are and the kind of person that you want and hope and long someday to be. And as time goes by, that gap gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And I'll tell you, eventually it breaks us. 
It's enough to crack us under the pressure. I, I want you to think about like watching the curated selections of somebody else's life and what that does in your heart as everyone just puts a fault line or a crack in the pot that is your life. And the accumulated effect over that will crush us. But here's the thing, here's the thing. Isn't it true? Isn't it true that God builds the most amazing things out of broken pieces? Amen? Isn't it true that God builds the most amazing thing out of the broken pieces that are each one of us? We're going to see him do that throughout this series. But in order to see what God does with the broken pieces that is our heart, that is our life, the accumulated broken pieces over decades of brokenness, we're going to have to see how to live a God-first life in a me-first world. We're going to see that throughout this series in terms of living a God-first life with our time. We're going to see a God-first life with our, with our goals and with our wills, with our wants. And this morning, we're going to see a God-first life with our influence. Some of you don't think that you necessarily have a ton of influence uh, over other people. Others of you do. You know, you can name, you can list off the people or the departments or the neighborhood, the businesses in which you have influence over. But I, I encourage all of you to think that God gave you some amount of influence for something, whether that's big or small, whether it's a small influence on lots of people or whether it's a huge influence on little people. Like God gave you a level of influence to leverage in order to make a huge, life-changing, kingdom-growing impact on other people. I'm going to show you what I'm talking about. We're going to go to John, the book of John, chapter 3. Uh, if you're new here, there's Bibles under the chairs in front of you. You can pull those out and follow along, but the words are going to be on the screen behind me. Remember, if you don't have a Bible at home, you like ours better, uh, whatever the reason, just go ahead and take it. We love that. It's yours to keep. Uh, John, chapter 3, it, uh, it starts off, uh, this is a gospel. It's, it means it's a Jesus story. It's an account. It's written by John, uh, but it, this passage is going to be about John the Baptist. It's a different guy. So it starts off, John 3, verse 22, it says this. So after this, this is just a random aside, but we just wrapped up this series twisted and like half of our twisted tips about how not to misread the Bible were like, read it in context. So I feel the first two words are after this. Just so you know, Jesus was just talking to a religious leader named Nicodemus, and the guy came and said, like, how do I get saved, essentially? And they had this really interesting conversation. If you've ever asked that question, that would be worth a look up on your way home, maybe. Not while you're driving. Have somebody else do it. John chapter 3. Check it out. And they have this cool conversation about that. Nicodemus comes to him at night because he doesn't, want, he doesn't want other people noticing. You see, the ministry of Jesus already in John chapter 3 is starting to crescendo. Like he's starting to get these followers behind him. So Nicodemus, this religious leader, already knows that Jesus is a threat. And boy, is he right that Jesus is dramatically going to threaten the religious system of the day. Okay, but this one isn't about Nicodemus. It's about John and Jesus. And it says this, After this, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside where he spent some time with them, this is disciples, and baptized. 23, now John was also baptizing at Anan near Salem because it was, because it was plenty of water. <laughs> I love the line. He's baptizing so many people. He is now looking for spots where there's plenty of water. Also worth noting, it's the desert. So like, oh, I get why he wrote it down. And now, and people were coming out and being baptized. 
Side note, 24, this was before John was put in prison. I just kind of want to make a note. That's why they call him John the Baptist, right? It has nothing to do with theology. It has nothing to do with church tradition. It has nothing to do with stale coffee served in the narthex. Zach told me I could say that joke. He's Baptist. It doesn't matter. Okay. He's, he's John the Baptist because he baptizes people. And I just like, how cool is that to be known as the guy who baptizes all kinds of people, dozens, if not hundreds of people. Anyway, John has got this reputation for being the baptizer. This is the thing he does. This is the thing that he's known for. And now people are coming from all over and coming to him because after all, remember, he's the baptizer. Until Jesus shows up. We continue the story in verse 25. And now an argument, an argument developed between some of John's, John the Baptist disciples and a certain a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. We're not going to go there right now. Verse 26, they came to John and said to him, "Uh, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, look, he is baptizing, and there's a key phrase, he is baptizing, and everyone is going to him. I just want to preach on that for just a minute. Everyone is going to him. John, we followed you here because this is your thing. This is what you do, John. And now Jesus is over there across the river, other side of the river. And now everybody is going to him, John. Now think about that for just a minute from the perspective of John. You see, before John was known as John the Baptist, before John was known as that, he was maybe known as just John. In fact, he was probably known with a, with a less desirable title. He was probably known, not John the Baptist or just John. He was probably known as John the Weirdo or something like that. Because for some of you who know the story, you know different gospel, different Jesus story according to Mark. We get a little more information about him. In Mark chapter 1, it says that John the Baptist, the weirdo at this point, John moved out of the city. John moved away from people. John turned his back on all of that. John lived in the desert. John lived in the middle of nowhere. Mark says that John was weird. He wore, he wore uh, clothes made out of camel hair. You don't make clothes out of camel hair. Not now, not then, not ever. But John did because John is John the weirdo. That's who John is. John ate locusts. John ate honey. And you know, John didn't buy chocolate-covered locusts at the farmer's market downtown. <laughs> you know that John didn't buy his honey organic fair trade at Trader Joe's. No, because John is John the weirdo. And John finds honey by following the bees back to the nest and like cracking it open, covered in camel hair and stealing the honey out of it because he's John the Weird. He finds locusts by kicking over logs and finding bugs. And that's what he eats because again, he's not John the Baptist right now. He's John the Weirdo. And the whole time while he's doing this, culture, everybody, people around just totally reject him. That's not just John. That's John the Weirdo. And the whole time he's out in the wilderness, he's out in nowhere, and he's, and, he's, and he's talking to anybody who will listen, and probably a lot of people who don't want to. And the message that he has again and again is there is a way, there's a different way to live your life. There's a way to live your life that's not lived underneath the, the religious authority of the time. There's a way to live your life of turning away, literally turning, repenting away from that stuff. There's a way of living your life where you're not just going through the motions, but like it's written on your heart. There's a way of living your life where there is grace and there is freedom. 
But first we turn our, turn our backs on, on all the junk, on all the sin, on all the lies, on all the pride, on all the vanity, on all the stuff. You turn away from that and be baptized. Turn away, repent, and be baptized. And you know what? Weirdo's, weirdo John's message, it started to gain traction. Like, yeah, I know. Who would have thought that it would have gotten traction? But, but, but now, he doesn't go to the cities to find people who are interested in hearing his message. No, no. When we're dropping into the story, everybody in the city is coming out to listen to John, and they're struck by what he says. And, and then they ask him, I want to turn away. I want to turn away from, from all of the different messed up ways that the world works. I want to reject that stuff. And, and I want to receive this grace. I want to receive this forgiveness. I want to be a part of, of this community that lives such an upside down life that if you don't experience it firsthand, you have no idea what it's about. People are saying, I want that. And John says, be baptized. Repent and be baptized. And now it's gaining so much traction and people are coming from all over that he goes from just John to John the weirdo and now John the Baptist because that's what he does better than anybody. But his disciples come over, remember? And they say, yeah, but John, you do this better than everybody, but there's a guy across the river who does it better and the disciples of John are now kind of scared, right? And they're looking at it going, John, I signed up for this deal because you're the best at what you do. And now, quote, everybody is going to him. Alyssa, friends, this is a 2,000-year-old story about rabbis in Jewish times. It would have no bearing on today, right? Like, like we would never be found guilty of looking across the river and saying, doesn't it seem like everybody has gone to him? What happened to me? Like, there wouldn't be, there wouldn't be the case of a couple uh, junior sales executives at the office who are, who are duking it out to, for the promotion or for the raise or, or for the bonus. Like, there wouldn't be somebody in a, in a cubicle someday, someday hustling, working hard, making calls, doing everything that they possibly can over, over a long, over a huge period of time. And there wouldn't be somebody who, who experienced failure after failure after failure until finally something sticks and something lands. And, and they, get, they get known for something and they get some amount of spotlight and some amount of success. And just as it's looking like all of that has paid off, he looks across the river and says, someone's doing me better than me. And now everybody is, everybody is going to him. I got, I got little kids in school that I talk about every week. And, uh, no, whatever. Okay, this is a joke. Anyway, I got kids, and I notice that there's this, there's this period at the end of the year where, like, you sign up for the next year. Nobody wants to think about school right now because it's summer, and I get that, but hang with me. There's a period where somebody signs up for the next year. And I can hear, like, the chatter from the other parents about teachers for next year. And I don't think it's just one school or one grade level or, or college level or whatever it is, but, but, but the chatter is like, oh, did you get Mrs. So-and-so, Mr., you know, you got to get this person. You got to get this. Stay away from, oh, I don't know about that person. 
And I just want to like step into the shoes of that person, somebody who has been fine-tuning his craft, her craft, over not just years, but over decades, and they are good at what they do. And, and then somebody else comes along, and they look across the river and say, why is it that everybody's signing up for his class or her class? Well, why is it that now everybody is going to him or to her? Let me, just, let me just ask a rhetorical question, don't do anything with it, but what does that do to your heart? What does that do to your, to your insides? Like, is there some element there where it makes you angry, where it makes you bitter, where it makes you resentful to the person across the river? C.S. Lewis, shameless plug here for our group that meets pub style about C.S. Lewis writing, uh, mere Christianity, but C.S. Lewis has this, this quote. He's a theologian, kind of philosopher type. He has this quote that says that, did you know, we take pride, humanity, people take pride, not just in possessing a thing. No, no, we don't take pride in possessing a thing. We take pride in possessing more of a thing than him or her. Like, I don't just want to be rich, I want to be richer than him. She doesn't want to be fit. She wants to be fitter than her. You don't want your kids to just, it's not good enough for your kids just to be smart. They've got to be smarter than the person across the river lest everybody goes to them. That's what the disciples are feeling. That's what's welling up inside of them as they bring this message back to John. But, but John, I love this so much. He's so wise and he is so clever and he has such a good perspective on life and where he stays into it. It's almost like he gets it innately, just already. He, before that whole thing, before the comparison game ever even begins, John just draws it up, right? And it's like he gets, he goes, you know the problem with looking across the river? The problem with being more-er than the person across the river is that there's always going to be someone more-er than er across, more-er than er across the river, right? There's always going to be somebody more-er than your-er the whole time. And so John's like, no, no, no. The solution, he doesn't say this, but what he says next, strongly elusive, the solution isn't lining yourself up with the person across the river. No, it's something else entirely. Listen to what he says. When the disciples come to him and they're all upset, their hearts are full of bitterness. Everybody's going to him, verse 27. To this, John replied, a person can, only, a person can receive only what is given them from heaven. I'm just, there's a lot there, so I'm gonna say it again. A person can receive only what is given them from heaven. In other words, John's saying, like, what it sounds like you're saying, what I hear you saying to me, and let me know if this is correct, good active listening, is, hey, it sounds like you're really focused on the people across the river. Did you know that, did you know that, like, life, or living the most intentional life you can, or the best life that you can, did you know the following Jesus, the following the teachings, even following John the Baptist in that time, following my teachings, did you know that has nothing to do with looking across the river. It's almost like he's trying to say, did you know you gotta stop looking horizontally and start paying attention to the vertical? And for his disciples, it was like, what? Who is this guy? All's we've done our whole lives. We spend hours in training on our phones every day to, to be the best that we can at looking horizontally, evaluating horizontally. And now John says, you gotta get off that road 
and pay attention to the vertical. In a sense, he's like, I hear that you're saying the grass is greener on the other side of the river. And, and you want to find out what they're doing, or you want to go over there, or, or you're nervous more people are going to go over there. It's like, have you ever considered that maybe God, in his infinite wisdom, when he was drawing up the lines of ability, when he was drawing up the lines of talent, when he was drawing up the lines of blessing, whatever that means, he saw fit to do this over there and that over here. And because, we're, because he's God and we're not God, however he draws the lines up, have you ever just considered that the solution or the way forward is not by looking over there, but by asking why here? Have you ever just considered that? That the problem that you have if you find yourself discontent, the problem that you have if you find yourself angry, the problem that you have if you find yourself bitter, the problem that you have if you find yourself resentful is not anger, bitterness, and resent towards the person across the river. The problem that you have is anger, bitterness, and resentment towards God because God in his infinite wisdom decided to draw it up that way and you're angry about it, you're bitter about it, and you're resentful about it. And I get that. I think everybody that you talk to gets that. Because you don't want to be angry, bitter, resentful for God, so you put it on somebody else. It's his fault. It's her fault. It's their fault instead. When actually it was God. I take a really high view of God and his control and his sovereignty, and I think it was God who drew it up that way. And I get angry about it, and I get bitter about it too. But the way I see it, then you have a choice to make. Because you can be angry, bitter, and resentful about, to God about what God has done. You can do that. See where it gets you. <laughs> Probably already live in that place. It's not a guy's one. But, but instead, the other choice, instead of anger, bitter, resentment towards God about how he's drawn it up, if you're looking across the river and somebody else's lawn is greener than yours, this is going to be groundbreaking, I know. You could water your lawn, right? <laughs> and what that looks like in the vertical relationship with God is you could ask God, God, I can see what you created them to do, what you created her to do, him to be. I get that. God, what did you ask me to be? What kind of person did you ask me to be? What kind of things did you ask me to do? God, what do you want me to accomplish for you in this world, in this day, in this hour? God, what do you want from me? Not paying attention to anybody else is doing in the world, but God, just your opinion is the only one that matters. You can have a choice between being angry, bitter, and resentful for God, to God the way that he drew it up, or you can, or you can kneel before God and say, you're God, not me. You're in control, not me. You're the one who knows best. You're the one who has my highest, not just interest, but my highest interest in mind. You, Lord, you'll make this right even at the end of time. You'll make this right, God. You're God, not me. Who do you want me to be? Who do you, what do you want me to do for you is the choice. And to answer that choice, I love this. John gives, the Baptist, he, he gives like a, oh, okay, the first step that you gotta get in this like, in this process of figuring out what does God want, who does God want me to be? What does God want me to do? The first step, contrary to popular thought, it's what not to do, what not to be. Listen to what he says in verse 27. I'm sorry, 28. He says, you yourselves can testify that I said, huge phrase here, I am not the Messiah, but I'm sent ahead of him. If we could, 
Like, this is so important, I think, for us to get down, especially, like, if you're a part of a church or especially if you're trying to follow Jesus as, as best as you possibly can. Could we just say that underlined word all together? Let's say it now. One, two, three. I am not the Messiah. You're going to need to say that a few more times this week because if there's somebody in your life that you're trying to help or if there's something that you're trying to do and you determine, like, God, this is the thing that you've given me to do. This is the person that you've, you've called me to be. And, and then you put so much on that. And now it's not like the horizontal comparison game that's cracking you into pieces anymore, but, it, but it's our own failure to measure up to what we believe God put in our hearts. So you and I, we're going to need to say that a few times this week and say, oh, no, 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 I, with me now, I am not the Messiah. You see what John is doing. What John is doing is, is, he, is he's, he's defining who he is not in order to discover who he is. Right? He's, he's laying out just all the things that he is not supposed to do in order to uncover the things that he is supposed to do. I am not the Messiah. He says, I cannot forgive your sins. I cannot redeem your past mistake. I cannot make something beautiful out of the shards of your life, John says. But, but I know who can. And he's across the river. It's almost like John isn't threatened by somebody doing, out doing John across the river. It's almost like, like John doesn't care so much if there's somebody across the river who's, who's doing something because John knows not only who he is, but whose he is. And he follows it up with a weird story. You didn't see that coming, did you? Either it is disciples. He goes... <laughs> He goes, verse 29, um, by the way, the bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom, that's just groom, if, if that helps, um, waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the groom's voice. John goes, that joy is mine and is now complete. Awesome line here. He must become greater. I must become less. Now, I just want to make mention uh, a thing about that, that weird, like, bridegroom kind of story. You see, a long time ago, they had this tradition. We don't know much about it today. It's this Jewish thing. It's called the Shashbeth, I think is how to pronounce that. I'm probably killing it, but whatever. It doesn't matter. But they had this tradition. It loosely translates to best man, <laughs> right? They, they had best men back then. It's a, it's a friend of the groom. If he's related, if he has a brother, it was probably the brother, not unlike today. But some of you are probably going to be a best man or have been a best man. Maybe you're doing that role this summer for somebody. And you just assume that as best man, your role, your contribution to this wedding is both to plan a bachelor party and make inappropriate jokes during the toast. It isn't. And it's not as funny as you think. Take it from somebody who tells bad jokes. But Back then, there was a huge amount of responsibility on that friend of the groom, on that best man, on the shoshbeth. The, the part of the responsibility was, I don't know, he'd like, he'd plan the ceremony, including the invitations that went out by hand. Could you, like for those of you who are getting married this summer, and I know because I'm going to be at a lot of them, but could you imagine handing over the ceremony and the invitations to your best man? Like just... Right? Exactly. I know who's laughing right now because I know they're best man. Anyway, um, that was the level of responsibility. It's one of the more nuanced ones. And this is what, what John is, is lining in here. One of the more nuanced ones was, was his job to, to guard the bridal chamber. Remember, they're like tents and things like that and say like, hey, it's my job to look out for the bride. 
and keep her good, keep her happy, keep her safe. Like whatever. Again, nobody would do this to their, to their best man. But that was the best man's job, the Shoshbeth back then. And he would guide, guard the bride until it was time for the groom to come. And then because it was dark, he would listen for the groom's voice and the groom's voice only. And only then, when the bride and groom were together as the first night as a married couple, did he know that his job, his task was complete. And he would, as it said, walk away in joy because his task is complete. John the Baptist knows so clearly what he is not and who he is and who he, whose he is, that he knows that his role is to take care of the bride, the church of Christ. He knows that his role is to take care of all of us, is to guard all of us, is to protect all of us, is, is to guard us from all sin, from all evil, from all the junk in this world that, that breaks us into pieces. He knows that it's his job to guard each and every one of us until one time, one time, finally, Jesus will come come back and claim his bride, and together they would march into eternity forever. That was John's job. And now when he looks across the river, he isn't threatened. He isn't angry. He looks at somebody across the river who is doing this job of protector and guider better than he could ever do, and he is just so happy and so elated. And you think about everything that was happening in John's life, and I'm just beside myself. Because here's a guy who went from just John to John the weirdo to, to John the Baptist. And in fact, he was, he was so renowned. Herod, the king of the region, would come and listen to him. He was so renowned that the people from every cross-section of society, rich and poor, religious, irreligious, they would all come out to hear him teach and to hear him instruct about how to live a God-centered life in a, in a me-centered world. They would all listen to him, and they were, they were getting baptized by him. And then he was making headlines with his message. And now as the story is about to conclude on John the Baptist's life, we see him not not making headlines on a page, but losing his head in the jail cell of Herod. His life eclipsed. And he was elated about it because he knew what his role was. I just want to land this all for us and say, my life and yours is going to eclipse. It will come to an end. Something will take it, whether it's old age, whether it's something else. All of our lives will come to an eclipse. And I simply want to ask if you can have the same confidence as John did when he walked away in joy because he knew so clearly what his role was and who he was and whose he was. Can you walk away with that same joy that John the Baptist did when his life became eclipsed, as all of ours will eventually? In the Old Testament, 1 Samuel 18, it's this powerful story of David and his friend Jonathan. You see, David had been anointed king some years earlier. And nobody really knew about it because it was a private thing. But now more and more people got to know that, that David would be king somewhere, except what was standing in his way is Jonathan, because, because there already was a king, Saul, and Jonathan was Saul's son. So, so while God and a close group of people 
looked at David as the next king. The whole rest of the kingdom looked at Jonathan as the next king. And and Jonathan looked over at David and looked over at what God was doing in David's life. And he said these incredible words that John the Baptist said about Jesus, that, that he must become greater and I must become less. And like the level of sacrificial heart that it would have taken for, for Jonathan to take all of his chips and to put them in on David, not himself, to be the next great king over Israel. That his life would be eclipsed by the life of David because that's in God's world, in God's eyes, how God saw it fit. So who's Jonathan to do anything else? And, and when David finally, finally became installed as king in Israel, Jonathan wasn't there because Jonathan chose not to diminish that moment at all for David. Jonathan chose to die on the battlefield next to his dad, Saul, that he would become less so John would become greater. Listen, all of our lives are going to be eclipsed by something, sometime, somewhere. I just want to invite you to consider, like, whatever you make your life about, is it worth it? Everybody, every single one of us is going to make our lives about something. Maybe it's accumulation. Maybe it's a number. Maybe it's something that floats on the water that you can fish from. Maybe it's a house that you live in. Like, like all a career status. All of, our, all of us are going to live our lives about something. I just invite you to consider, is it worth it? Is your life worth giving over to that thing? Is it worth being known as somebody who loved that thing? And on the other side, for the rest of us weirdos, I want to invite you to consider giving your life for the only one who is ever willing to give his life for yours. Isn't that, isn't Jesus Christ, isn't the Son of God worth the, the sole one worth giving our lives over to? There's a story about William Carey. He's the father of modern missions, often talked about. Uh, lived in the mid-1800s. He was a European missionary sent to, sent to India, and he did incredible things. In a time when everybody would just go to foreign places to them and, and just tell them about Jesus, William Carey was the guy that says, no, no I'm not just going to tell them about Jesus. I'm going to get to know them. I'm going to serve them. I'm going to set up a school to help teach them uh, math, to help teach them writing in their own language, to help teach them accounting so they can have jobs. He's the poorest of the poor areas. And he would serve them. And then he would also take the opportunity, as it would present it, to, to present Jesus to them and to teach them about Jesus, along with accounting and writing and all of that. There was, a, there was a practice in India named, uh, called sati, where if a husband would die, a, a woman would, would take herself, um, as, as they put him on a funeral pyre and light it up, she would, she would throw herself on the funeral pyre or, or bind herself, tie herself to the wood that her husband w- w- was, was being burned on after death. And, and William Carey was instrumental in India in ending that horrific practice. This guy did so many incredible, amazing things with his life. But when his life was eclipsed, when it all came to a close, as it inevitably will for each one of us, he laid on his deathbed, brought his friend's ear close, and whispered into it, he said, when I'm gone, 
Don't talk about William Carey. Talk about William Carey's Savior. May we have the courage to do just that. May we have the courage to live every month, every week, every day, every hour with the courage to say, when I'm gone, don't talk about me. Talk about my Savior. What you don't know until you've been to a lot of funerals is what life is actually about. Because every single funeral that I have been to, it has lined up with this one singular purpose about what life is about. That life is not measured in accumulation. Life is measured by how much of it you give away. Life isn't measured by accumulation. Life is measured by how much of it you give away. Nobody talks at a funeral about John had a really, really great boat. Nobody stands up at a funeral and said, I love Susan's house. It was so big and impressive and expensive. Nobody does that at a funeral. At a funeral, what is celebrated is not the accumulation of things. What is celebrated at a funeral is generosity and selflessness. The measure of life isn't what's accumulated. It's how much of it has given away. You all, we all have some level of influence over somebody in our life. And you can take all of that influence and you can put it squarely on yourself. Or you can say, along with, along with Jonathan and along with John the Baptist, he must become greater. Jesus must become greater. I must become less. Would you stand with me? Friends, as I said before, this comes down, this comes down to a trust issue. Do you trust him? Do you trust him with your life? Do you trust that, that from heaven he can hear you? Do you trust that he will draw near you? Do you trust that even though the wind and the waves will come, that he will stay by you? Do you trust him? Speak life to me. 